1: Father, we come into your presence this morning from all different places, having all kinds of different needs. Well, Lord, we know something of what you are. We know something of your character and nature. We know that you were wise and that you understand all the different places where we come from. You are insightful and understand all the different needs. You are powerful and capable of meeting all of them. You are good and interested in meeting all of them. And you've given us your word that we might hear from you, connect it to our lives, and be changed. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that despite our great diversity and, and the wide array of needs and problems that we struggle with, I pray that you would speak through this one text to all of us, lifting up yourself, your son, meeting the needs of those in this room, those who are your children and those who are not yet. Father, this is a, a great request, incredibly complex. You are a great God. Wise and strong. And so I lay it at your feet and say, Speak, please. Speak to us through your scripture. Thousands of years old, alive today. By the power of your spirit, Lord, speak through your scripture. Affect change in this church. Bring honor to your son because of it. That's my request, Lord. I pray that in Christ's name, amen. Today is the last Sunday of the year 2008. And as I thought and considered what text I wanted to preach this morning, I found myself grateful to God consistently. Now, I'm far too much of a pessimist to let negative thoughts fleet away without giving them thorough contemplation. (laughs) So I have thought about and I am aware of of the negative things, of the troubles that we have faced this year, of the trials and hardships and sorrows, and there have been plenty of them. But still, even in them and, and sometimes despite them, oftentimes through them, there is much to be grateful for. There is, I think, clear evidence that God is at work in our midst here in this church, and I'm thankful for that. And so that's the perspective that's kind of shaped where we're going this morning. Not to embark on a stroll down memory lane re- recounting all of this last year and all that God has done over this last year, but instead to, to take a moment here this morning to give our attention to a text that shows us God at work, God at help to his people, and, and teaches us some of how that comes about, why, the parameters within which God works for his people, and also serves as an encouragement and a warning to us to show us how he'll do that in the future, and also how that can be stifled. That's where we're going this morning. Into the text, 1 Samuel chapter 7. This passage contains one verse that you may well know because it's in a song, but generally the, the larger context is not very familiar to us. So before I read the passage, let me set it up. After Israel leaves Egypt, leaves the slavery in Egypt, moves Out across the desert, wanders for 40 years. It eventually comes into the promised land, conquers it, and settles in it. And for a very short while, things go very well. Key part being, for a very short while, things go very well. Just a matter of a few years, though, the nation drifts from a people who closely follow the Lord and are careful to keep His covenant. It drifts away from that and enters into a cycle that alternates between utter spiritual decay, reform, Utter spiritual decay and reform, utter spiritual decay, up and down, highlights and lowlights. That's the period of the judges in your Bible. Highlights always followed by lowlights. And during one of those low points, a boy named Samuel is born. Samuel grows up, it becomes evident that he has a heart for the Lord. And as chapter three of 1 Samuel recounts, God calls him to be a prophet and a judge over Israel, which is essentially like a ruler over Israel, God's leader here on the earth. But this is going to be a tough assignment. It's a great privilege, but it's going to be a tough assignment because Israel during Samuel's lifetime is in one of those low periods. In fact, the Philistines are oppressing the land, and in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, it recounts how they attack Israel, and Israel goes out to fight them at a place called Ebenezer, and they lose on the first day of battle. And so the Israelite army that night kind of gets together and it's thinking up a a new strategy for the next day and it figures, why is it that we lost today? And somebody comes up with a great idea. I know, let's bring God onto the battlefield. Remembering how in the past God had fought many battles for them and had delivered the people how the Ark of the Covenant had been the presence of God amongst his people doing miraculous things like parting the Jordan River, winning various battles. They think, let's bring God onto the battlefield. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God had uniquely put his presence. That'll guarantee us victory. In some settings, that's a good idea where the people are genuinely trusting God. But this is just Ark as Secret Weapon tactics. This is a lucky charm use of the ark, and God doesn't go for that. It all backfires. Israel loses the battle, and the ark of the covenant is captured, carried off into Philistine land. God has abandoned his people because of their sin. And even though the ark eventually finds its way back into Israel, the spiritual climate of the land has not changed, and the ark actually proves toxic to them. A number of men are struck dead because they treated it improperly, And so Israel kind of sets the ark off to the side and leaves it alone. Which brings us to our text for this morning. Samuel's grown up, and he's developed a reputation as a prophet, but he's been silent for several chapters now. But here at this place, here in chapter 7, he's going to reenter the picture and address Israel in its place of religious uncertainty. It's at a low point, but it's not entirely separated from God. He's going to address Israel and, and tell them how to respond. So let me read the text. This is 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole, te- whole chapter, all 17 verses. And the men of kiriath Jirim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on, a, on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jirim a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah for his home was there and there also he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. 1 Samuel 7. When the ark is returned, basically we saw that the Israelites avoid it. They set it in this town, they put this guy in charge of it and they leave it alone for 20 years. But during that period, they mourned after the Lord. They lamented after him, which is a grieving of a people who are are seeking and and are looking for something that they've lost, but can't quite get back, but they miss it. They wish they could. So this is kind of of a mixed statement about the condition of the people. It's good in that they haven't abandoned the Lord. They are still conscious of him and are still kind of reaching for him and seeking after him, but it's bad in that they don't do anything to fix it. They don't get him back. So it's a mixed statement. There's a sorrowful distance from God. And into that context, Samuel speaks, verse 3, seeing them in this state, he says, if you're really going to return to God, then return. This is called repentance. The Old Testament's language for repentance is this language of turning. If you're going to turn, then do it. Turn to the Lord and set aside all of the idols that you're also worshiping. That's what the Baals and the Ashtaroth are. They're they're various idols of the lands that Israel had conquered. They're worshiping them with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Samuel points that out. This is the problem right here. He had not delivered them from the Philistines because the people's heart were not fully set on him. They're lamenting after the Lord while also worshiping idols. And that's what he confronts, syncretism, an attempt to synchronize two things, the worship of God and the worship of a bunch of of other stuff. He points out that can't happen. Turn to him wholeheartedly with all of your heart. And people hear that and they respond well to it. Verse 4 says they put aside all these other gods and serve the Lord only. And verses 5 and 6 are more the same. The people are repentant, voluntarily setting themselves under Samuel's leadership. They gather together, they pour out water before the Lord, and they fast. That water there, the the pouring of water. Throughout the law, which is the the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the books that Moses wrote, Throughout the law, water is used symbolically in a variety of ways, most often to indicate cleansing. You take water and you ceremonially wash things that are ceremonially unclean. You're not literally moving dirt off of the item, but it's a a spiritual uncleanness, and you wash it with water to make it clean. You can wash utensils, buildings, your hands, your body, seems that what's going on here is that Samuel says, let's bring water and pour it out in front of the people so as to ceremonially wash the whole lot of us. We're going to pour out water between us and the Lord so as to wash us entirely clean and combined with humble fasting and a verbal statement of we have sinned. This is the people coming clean before God. And as they are all gathered there at the town of Mizpah, the Philistines hear about it, and probably assume that they're gathered together to rebel against their authority, and so they decide to strike first and come up with an army to attack them. When they hear about that, it says they're afraid. No kidding. But look how they respond this time. Again, threatened with a Philistine military attack, and it's no magic ark theology this time. They've realized something. They've realized what it is that sometimes gives the ark power But when withdrawn, makes the ark just a wooden box. It's God. They don't need a box. They need the Lord. And so they they beseech Samuel, do not cease crying out to the Lord on our behalf that he may come and deliver us from the Philistines like you said he would. Go to him. Seek him. Continue to do that. And so Samuel does. And it says in verse 9 that he offers up a whole burnt offering. Again, referring back to the law, a burnt offering in the law, it has a variety of different uses, but the common theme throughout is that this offering is a pleasing offering to God. When the smoke rises up, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He looks down at those on whose behalf it is offered and says, that pleases me. I'm pleased with you. Samuel offers up a burnt offering. And then verse 10 combines three things, presenting them as if they're simultaneous so as to emphasize the connection. While he's offering up this offering, the Philistines attack, and God thunders from heaven, pleased, and destroys their enemies. To which they respond in verse 12, hallelujah. Here's the verse you probably know. They raise up a stone, an Ebenezer, saying, thus far God has helped us. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says Ebenezer means stone of help. The Ebenezer of chapter 4, where they fought the Philistines and were defeated, has been replaced by a new Ebenezer. Here God has helped us. And from that point on, the hand of the Lord is strong with Israel, strong against the Philistines, delivers them throughout the rest of Samuel's life. And they all lived happily ever after the end. Not quite. That is the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7 ends on a high note. But I need to add in a little bit more this morning for the sake of how I want to use this passage in our church's life. I need to push us just a little bit ahead into chapter 8. At the end of chapter 7, everything is great. At the end of chapter 7, God is the champion of his people Israel. He's the warrior who fights their battles on their behalf, and he is taking names and taking care of things. It would seem to be a situation that you'd want to maintain. But by chapter 8, verse 7, the people of Israel have come right back around to where they were before our chapter, rejecting God as king, seeking a human king like all the other nations have. God sees what's going on in their hearts, calls it for what it is. They have rejected me as being king over them. And Samuel pleads with the people and warns them of the folly of doing this, of of all that it's going to entail, why you don't want to do this, reject God as king and have a human king. But by verse 19, they say, no, we will have a king over us, a human king, just like all the other nations, and he'll judge us, and he'll go out and fight our battles for us. And you read that, and you should be thinking, I thought that was God's job. Why are you giving God a pink slip and hiring a human? That makes no sense. That's what they do. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thank you very much. We'll take it from here. That's what Israel does. That's our text for today an encouragement and a warning an encouragement in that it shows us God at work, God as a help and a warning in that it shows us how it can be squandered. That's where I want to go with this text this morning. But to do that, we first have to look at what's going on in the passage itself, what the main thrust of the passage is. And as always, the main thrust is about God. The Bible is a book about God. The whole Bible, it reveals who God is, what he thinks, what he values, what he loves, what he hates, how he acts, and then we figure out what we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to act in response as as we look at that, as we see him. So it's first about him, secondarily about us. This passage is no different. It's first about God, what he's like, what he's doing, and then we see that and we'll respond to it at the end. First, we need to look at God. God i going to make three observations from this passage and then tie them together at the end. So here's the first one. God helps those who are pleasing and acceptable worshipers of him. God helps those who are pleasing and acceptable worshipers of him. I see this in what Samuel says in verse 3. Start at the end of the verse. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. That's the help that they need. That's the need of the moment. Deliver us from the Philistines. And he says, God will do that. When will he do it? Well, wind back in the verse. Here's what you need to do. Put away the foreign gods. Put away all the idols and turn your heart, direct your heart, he says, to God alone. Then he'll deliver you. That's clearly what Samuel says right in that verse. To turn your heart to him and set aside all these other gods, that is what is acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. And if you do that, then he'll deliver you with help. Notice the phrases there about all your heart. Direct your heart to the Lord only, twice in verses 3 and 4. These are statements that are about focused worship. To serve a God or a goddess, is to worship him, or her, or it. Very often, in in the prescribed ways that the god or goddess says, with some sacrifices, or some prayers, or some offerings, to obey in certain areas of life, and sometimes you'd offer them at a shrine, or at a temple, very often in just all of your ordinary undertakings. That's what it is to serve a god. To obey him, or her. And what Samuel's just pointing out is that what pleases the Lord, worship of the Lord, is when you turn your whole heart to and serve Him only. The problem he's dealing with is this mixing of worship. You cannot hug God while also trying to hug all these other idols. To use other language in the Bible, that's idolatry and adultery. You cannot say, I'm with you, And I'm with you. God won't have that. God will not be mocked. He says, No, I will not come to your help while you are mixing me with the gods of the land. Come to me with your whole heart. That's what Samuel says to them very clearly in verse 3. And he's right because he's a prophet. But he didn't come to this just by God, like speaking out of heaven and saying, Here's the deal. He just read his Bible. You can look at the law. This is all over the law. Consider, for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord and to walk in all his ways? to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10. What does God require? A lot of all's there. That you serve Him only, not the gods of the lands. That you serve Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. That you keep His commandments. That you serve Him only. That's total focused worship. That's what God requires. That's what's pleasing to him. That's what is acceptable in his sight. That's chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 28 ends by saying, and if you do not turn aside to the right hand or the left to go after other gods and to serve them, here's all the blessings that I'll give you. He's making something very clear in the law. Pleasing and acceptable worship is wholeheartedness after me and it results in blessing. Samuel simply read his Bible and realized, guys, here's the problem. I mean, it says right here in the text. You could open it up and look at it. You've turned aside to the right or to the left and so you're not pleasing and acceptable to God but actually an offense to him and he will not come to your aid. He won't. God told us that he helps those who are pleasing and acceptable. And the opposite of that in Deuteronomy 28 is that we will live languishing, oppressed, under curse, not blessing. And that's where we are. The problem is clear. Written in the law, pronounced by the prophet here, straightforward. But I hope that there's also a a little bit of confusion in your mind about this. Because it's really clear, on the one hand, I mean, Samuel says it. You can read Deuteronomy. It's, it, I mean, you can read everywhere in the law. It's all over the place. But there should be a little bit of confusion and a little bit of unsettledness if you think about it for just a minute. Pleasing and acceptable worship is loving and the Lord my God, and serving him only by obeying all of his commands all the time with all of my heart and all of my soul. That's what's pleasing and acceptable worship that produces the blessing of God, and the opposite of that produces the curses of God? Hmm. Who among us is a pleasing and acceptable worshiper? not me all of my heart all of my soul all the commands all the time I mean not just in the mornings in the afternoon you can worship somebody else not just on Sunday not just partially that's that's the problem is all the partialness of this it's totality is what God is after says so right in the law everywhere I just picked out a couple places it's all over the place that should create a little bit of a problem in our minds because who among us can say, in the words of Deuteronomy, I've never turned aside to the right or to the left and followed after to serve other gods? Not me, not you. I'm not talking about the, the serving of little like stone statues. That's not the real essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is taking all the things of life, relationships, money, pleasures, jobs, thoughts, ideas, concrete things, immaterial things, all the things that our hearts can give attention to, place trust in, have love for. The essence of idolatry is taking all those things and elevating them to an inordinate degree, out of order, equal to or above God. That's what idolatry is. Many of those things we are commanded to love and trust and give attention to. Think of your family, for instance. They become idols, though, when we elevate them to an inordinate level, equal to or above God. And when you think about idolatry like that, you realize all of us are awash in it. An old theologian who knew his own heart and knew your heart said, our hearts are idol factories, constantly producing things for worship. Some of them good, but they become idols when we elevate them because our hearts are constantly looking for something to grab hold of and find life in. We're awash in idolatry. and Deuteronomy and the law says, God only helps those who are pleasing and acceptable worshipers, and acceptable worship is wholeheartedness. That's not me. Now, the text does say that they turn to the Lord only, so we're going to have to dig into that a little bit more. But just on the surface right there if we know anything about humanity we know that their turning to him was not total and was not permanent and we see proof of that in chapter 8 Their turning to them was their turning to him was not permanent was not total neither is mine But there's the requirement in the law for pleasing and acceptable worship what do we do with that How can God look at anybody and read his own Bible and say, there right there is a pleasing and acceptable worshiper of me whose heart totally pleases me. How can he do that? It takes us to our second observation. Here it is. Graciously, God provides a means of cleansing and covering that can make us acceptable to him. i say that again. Graciously, God provides a means of cleansing and covering that can make us acceptable to him. This is a work of God's grace. He does not need to do this. He could just judge us all. This is grace that he gives, that he provides A means that changes our standing before him. That can change our standing. I see this in verses 6, 9, and 10 in this passage. Acceptable service to God does not stop at verse 4 with them throwing away their idols. Everything's not good there at the end of verse 4 yet. Nor does it stop at the end of verse 5 when Samuel prays for them. He starts there But he doesn't stop there. He does not just pray to God, God, they're really sorry about their sin, and they're making great strides towards not doing it again. Let's call it good. He doesn't pray that because he knows that's not going to work. God's holy. God is holy, which means he has no tolerance for sin. He cannot embrace, overlook, downplay sin in us because he's pure and holy. And to do so would be unjust, and he's not unjust. He must deal with sin. It's the same who doesn't just pray only and say, let's just call it good. He doesn't do that. He knows that God's got to deal with it, but he also knows that God has graciously provided a means to deal with it, a means that will make us covered and cleansed and acceptable. Notice this carefully. The means that God's provided also comes from the law. There are not two things set against each other here. The requirements in the law for holiness, wholeheartedness towards God, and then the means that God provides to address the lack of this, both come from the law. They are together. They work together, not in exclusion or against one another. They both are a part of what it means to be an acceptable worshiper of Him. Let me try to illustrate this. I see this a bit like how we are to take care of our teeth. Now, not everybody does this. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take care in what you eat. So you don't eat stuff that's loaded with sugar, stuff that's very acidic, stuff that's really chewy and sticky and whatnot. You watch your diet, and you floss, Every day, a couple times a day perhaps. You brush your teeth a couple times a day to try to get all that stuff off. So you watch what you put on there and then you work to get it off. You strive to live with clean teeth. And you go to the dentist every six months because what you're striving to do to clean your teeth isn't going to work. I do all those things. I watch what I eat, I floss, I brush, and I still go to the dentist, and what do you know, they still find stuff to scrape off. (laughs) And last time, they found a couple of cavities. Little ones that they dealt with before they became big ones, but they were there. That's why I go to the dentist. I don't trust either or. I don't say, well, you know, I, I brush my teeth, so I don't need the dentist. Or I watch what I eat. I don't need the dentist Or I don't say, I go to the dentist every six months, so I'm not going to bother brushing my teeth. Probably thankful for that. (laughs) We do both. Both are required. Forgetting one or the other will leave you with dentures. For sure. I mean, even if you've got good genes, it'll leave you with dentures, for sure, eventually. You do both. That's kind of what's going on here with the law the requirement of the law to live in a way to be wholly given over to the Lord. And when you fail, the requirement of the law to come and offer the right cleansing and the right covering that will leave you still acceptable with him. The water of cleansing and the blood and smoke of the sacrifice. Verses 6 and 9. Samuel knows that the turning in verse 4 is itself not sufficient. To skip... The cleansing and to skip the offering would be to negate the work of verse 4. It would not be turning to the Lord with wholeheartedness to serve him as he requires. He requires attention to your life and the sacrifice that covers over the failing in your life. And so Samuel offers it, washes them with water, beseeches God for the Israelites and offers up a burnt offering. Water cleansing, blood and smoke covering, resulting in people cleansed of their sin, resulting in God looking at them and answering them pleased. These ones here are acceptable, pleasing worshipers. I will intervene to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. They're covered under the water. They're covered by the smoke and the blood. The grace of God provides a gracious means to cover and cleanse, to make people acceptable who otherwise in themselves would not be. One who offers up that sacrifice, who embraces the water and the blood, saying, let this be applied to me, is covered by it. First Samuel 7, that's the law. And if you know the New Testament at all, you know where this is going. You should see this plain as day, but I want to hold this right here in First Samuel seven for just a minute, so as to accent why it is important that there be some place to go. It, this goes somewhere, but it's critical that it has somewhere to go. If if you stay here in First Samuel seven, you look at this, you realize something. What a blessing verses six and nine are that that God would cover, that God would cleanse. What a blessing! Sort of. Sort of. If there's nowhere to go, and we're only right here with with the cleansing and the offering offered by the law, we're sort of blessed. We're restored to him. We gain his help in verse 10. We celebrate it in verse 12, and chapter 8 follows. And we're right back where we were before. If all that there is 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 the sacrifice and the offering of the law, we're stuck in this cycle because these cleansings, these coverings don't fundamentally change the problem. Me. They just cover it over for a little while until next time and then I need to wash myself again and offer another sacrifice again because it has not changed the problem. Me. So I have a cleansing that sort of works for a moment, a covering that is somewhat sufficient, but I just need to do it again and again and again and again and again and again again, because the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and birds does not take away human sin. And the cycle of the law is intended to show that this does not change anything. It does not fundamentally reorder your heart, worshiper. It makes you acceptable right now, but not five minutes from now or five days from now. You have to do it again. Oh, that God would provide a sacrifice and a washing that changes something that reorders what's going on in my heart, that I am wholly set towards him and am growing in holiness. Oh, that he would offer a sacrifice on my behalf that permanently changes my standing before him, that permanently connects me to the God who will be my help. And for that, graciously he has given us Jesus. Jesus. a sacrifice slain once, once and for all, to wash and to cover and to make those who say in faith, let that be applied to me, to make them pleasing and acceptable worshipers to him. And apart from that, there is no other sacrifice for sin. That's the point of 1 Samuel 7 to show us the law working really well. 1 Samuel 7 is a great chapter. It shows us the law at its prime, at its peak, pointing out sin, calling people to change in the sacrifices, them responding, God being oriented towards them and help. It's a great chapter. And chapter 8 is the wet blanket that shows its weakness and causes us to look ahead for something else. You read 1 Samuel 7, you realize God helps. God comes to the aid of those who are pleasing and acceptable worshipers to him, and God also provides a way for people to become pleasing and acceptable worshipers. For the moment, God, will there not be another time? Yes, there is in Christ. Praise God for that. How should we respond? That's the third observation. I'm going to be brief here. The appropriate response for us as we see what God is like and what God has done, I think, should be obvious that we should embrace. We should grab hold of and not let go of. We should embrace God's means of making you pleasing and acceptable to Him. Grab a hold of it, embrace it, embrace Jesus only. We're saved by faith in Christ alone, not faith in Christ plus something else, because the plus something else means that it's not faith in Christ. Faith alone saves. Embrace Jesus alone and be vigilant in making war on all the other stuff in life that lures you after it, all the other idols. The promise to deliver you from trouble and despair and sorrow and loneliness and boredom. A promise to give you meaning and significance. Make war against those things because they will subtly, constantly seek to ensnare you. Embrace Jesus alone. And if you, if you have not done that this morning, and I'm sure there are some here who haven't, if you have not done that, I plead with you. God himself pleads with you. Through my words out of his text, God himself pleads with you. Not just informing you about here's the situation, but pleading with you. Embrace Jesus. Embrace the single means that God has provided to cleanse you and cover you and make you acceptable to him. If you embrace him, he will cover over your sin and will be a steadfast help to you in all of life, delivering you not only from his wrath but also in the countless challenges that you face. He helps those who are pleasing and acceptable in his sight. And you can be that through Jesus, but apart from him, you cannot be. There is no other way The world will lie to you about that. It does every day, constantly. It will denigrate Jesus. It will cause you to want to discard this thing about faith. Pay attention to it. Be diligent. Look for the deception. God has told you how he will deliver you. Why would he deceive you? He has told you here is the path to life. Embrace it. I plead with you. Trust Christ. I need to make that clear, but that's not actually my main point. Here's why I wanted to preach this passage. So this is a long introduction to get to what I really wanted to say. (laughs) Why I wanted to preach this passage is to the church, to this church here this morning. Thus far the Lord has helped us. How are we going to complete that sentence? Are, are we going to tack on the end and may he help us tomorrow and the next day or are we going to tack on to the end, thank you very much, we'll take it from here. How are we going to complete that? There should be great encouragement here in the first half of that. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. If you're a Christian, you're covered by the blood of Christ, and God looks at you perpetually pleased. Now, he recognizes your sin, wants to address that. Sure, absolutely, but he looks at you perpetually pleased from a, from, a stance, from, from a viewpoint of grace. And all that he does in your life is grace. Even the hard things are his grace to you as he seeks to grow and develop you. There should be much encouragement. He is a helper to his people, always. There will be no wavering off of this point. He is always a help to his people. As I said, I'm going to be clear, sometimes that is in the form of discipline. We'll come to that in a minute. But you need to see always he is a help to you. And he has been a great help to us. Bringing us into relationship with him, relieving us of our, of our sorrows in many cases, often healing our bodies, restoring relationships, dealing with sin problems. Dealing with discord, not, not all of them, I know. I know. I'm a pessimist, I know this. But I also want to be a, a realist in an optimistic way and say, He has done much. He has been gracious to us, He has been a help. And He will always be a help to you, so be encouraged by that. But also be warned. Be warned. Because the reality of chapter 8 is that people in pride rose up and said, we can handle it ourselves. Thank you. And we're still capable of responding like that. As long as we're still here in this life, though we are saved and though we are being sanctified, we are not fully sanctified yet. We are not yet made perfect. That awaits us in heaven. During this life, we are being sanctified. And so there is still in us what Paul calls the flesh that burdens, that twists, that lies to us on the inside and there is still around us the world that is an enemy of God, and there is a single enemy, Satan, the one who hates our souls and seeks to destroy us. And while all those three realities still exist, there will always remain a possibility for pride. That's what happened in chapter 8, and that can happen to us. And when that happens, we must be where God says repeatedly, I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. He will discipline those who walk against him. Now, it, that still is his help to us because he's acting to work out of us pride and sin. It still is his help. But similar to how none of us enjoy being spanked when we're kids, which is a help to us, we should seek to avoid that. Be diligent. Be diligent in fighting against, in looking for, in fighting against the deception of the flesh, the deception of the world, and the deception of the deceiver that will attempt to tell you, you can do it. Take off by yourselves. Or the world is where it's at. You need a king like all the rest of the nations. You need to be like them and follow their methods and seek significance in what they are doing and what they are pursuing We will constantly be vulnerable to that, so be on guard against it. What are some ways to do that? Very quickly, set up Ebenezer's for yourself that remind you of what God has done. That's the purpose of them setting up the rock there. They say, here at this rock, this will remind us God defeated the Philistines for us, not us. God thundered from heaven and chased them away and then we struck them down as they ran. That rock reminds us. Set up Ebenezer's in your life where you remember what God has done. Also, feed your mind on the unworthiness that is in you. This might sound negative, but reflection on your own sin is one of the best things you can do. Because it reminds you, God works to help those who are pleasing and acceptable, i.e. not me. But yet he has made me pleasing and acceptable in Christ. Praise God. Reflecting on your own sin and the depth of it raises God in your esteem. Because you see what it is that he saved you from and what it is that he's transforming you from. Reflect on your own sin and therefore the gospel. Set up Ebenezer's, reflect on the gospel, and remain in fellowship with other people who will point out to you your blind spots. That's what Samuel does to the Israelites here. They had the book of the law in their possession. They could have read Deuteronomy just as well as he could, just as well as I could. They they had it written down. They should have known worshiping God in the morning and worshiping Baal in the afternoon and Ashtaroth after dinner is not going to cut it. But they missed it. Not necessarily because of hardened hearts. They are lamenting after the Lord. They want him back in some way. There's a softness in there. They just missed it. And Samuel comes along and says, right here, here's the problem. Remain in fellowship with other people in the body who will point out your blind spots to you. Here's where you're walking. Here's the deception that you're believing. Be on guard against that, brother, sister. You need other people. You need constant reflection on the gospel, and you need to remember God's work of deliverance in your life thus far. He's been most gracious to us as a church. He has grown us in in maturity, spiritual maturity, modestly in numbers. He's begun to turn our attention, I think, outward to cause us to look at other people out there and other people in here, not just ourselves. All the while, I I think, I pray, growing us in God-centered, Christ-exalting thinking and, and believing and hoping. May we not say, thank you very much. I'll take it from here to walk away from God in pride. Don't do that. God helps those who firmly grasp hold of and fervently depend on Christ as their only hope. God helps those who firmly grasp hold of and fervently depend on Christ as their only hope. May we be that kind of church in 2009. Let me pray. Father, we need grace from you day by day, moment by moment. And so I plead for that. Give grace here to those who aren't your children. Give grace to open their eyes and let them see the preciousness of Christ as a covering. Give them faith and cause them to trust you. And for those of us here who are your people, Lord, give us grace to cause us to embrace you and hold fast to you that you may continue to be an ever-present help in time of need and not have to help us in discipline. Lord, give grace to us in these various ways according to our different needs. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.